Our sermon scripture for today comes from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13, also known as the love chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you'll please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. May all that's done in this service today do nothing other than help us to seek justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with you. Amen. This is one of those passages which is a sermon in itself. It's beautiful, it's hopeful. It's illuminating and grounding. How many people had this read at their wedding? It's a reminder of how we should be to one another. It's a reminder of the power and grace of God's love for us. And it's beautiful, elevated language leads us into places of wonder and mystery and hope. The passage says a few truths about love. The first of which is that without love, there is nothing. Love is what gives life purpose. Love is what gives life direction. Love is what makes sense and cohesion out of the noise and the chaos of life. Love is the catalyst for change, both in our inner lives and to our material reality. The Greek word Paul uses for love in this passage is agape, which is divine love. Divine love is full of mercy and grace and power. It's God's love for us. God's love is the source of everything meaningful in life, and without it, life would cease to have meaning. And there's nothing we can do or nothing we did 
that earns this love. No matter how pious, nor how prophetic, nor how faithful we are, we do not earn God's grace and mercy, but it is given to us freely. There's nothing we can do to deserve this love, and likewise, there is nothing we can do to lose this love. Thus Paul says, I could have all the knowledge in the world, but that doesn't earn me God's love. God's love is the basis for our lives, the ground of our being. It's the thing by which all other things have meaning. And it's possible for us because of the nature and the values of God's love. It's patient. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not easily angered. It does not take record of wrongs. It is not self-seeking. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. And it protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres and never fails. And although there is nothing we can do to earn God's love, God's love is for us. And although we cannot fully comprehend what that means, it's still for us. This is the power and the mercy and the grace of God's love for us. This is what divine love looks like. This is what is present in our lives every single day. Every breath of air we take is infused with the Spirit of this love for us. And it's also a model for how to love one another. Love makes us hold each other both with the force of truth but also with the grace of patience. Love demands that we treat one another with humility and respect and look for the good of one another. It's both a statement of fact, this is how God's love is, and this passage is a challenge to us. God's love is this way, and we ought to emulate it within ourselves and among ourselves. Many things in life fail. They pass away, they become memories that fade, but love does not. Love stays with us, love bursts out in ripples of creative energy that reverberate through all of time and space. Now Paul is writing to a church in Corinth which has overemphasized and overvalued prophecies and gifts of tongues and knowledge, but they don't have love for one another. And he reminds the church that even prophecies, even the gift of tongues, even all the knowledge in the world, these things can never draw the whole picture. We still only know partially who we are and who God is, even if we have all the knowledge in the world and all the prophets in the world and the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation. They're like looking at a reflection of ourselves in a dim mirror, like looking at God through some kind of abstracted haze. But love is transformative. Love lets us see the whole of ourselves, not a reflection, but our actual selves. And God's love for us tells us more about who God is than any prophecy or any knowledge ever could. And once you are God's beloved, or at least know that you are God's beloved, you see the world 
differently. Paul says it this way, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Before I had the knowledge of God's love for me, I thought differently and behaved differently. I thought I was a different person, but now that I am God's beloved, and I know it, I put the trappings of that world behind me and instead live in God's love. That was my interpretation. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia series, was criticized for writing those books, for writing children's and young adult fiction. And in his time, the term adult wasn't used as a descriptor of the book's audience or settings or themes, but rather it was a term of approval. Being an adult book meant it was above the schlock of what children read, as if a book is better solely based on the fact that it's not written for children. I'll tell you, there's a lot of children's books, young adult fiction, children's movies and TV shows that are a lot more mature and complicated than Hell's Kitchen, for instance, which we've been watching. And this rubbed C.S. Lewis the wrong way. And he said this about it. To be concerned about being grown up to admire the grown-up because it is grown-up, to blush at the suspicion of being childish, these things are the marks of childhood and adolescence. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown-up. Last week, Anissa and I watched Shrek, which is a movie that was pivotal to shape my sense of humor growing up. And I think about that C.S. Lewis quote whenever I watch Shrek or any number of movies from my childhood or read the Red Wall books that I read as an elementary school kid or play Pokemon or do any number of things that might be embarrassing for an almost 30-year-old to admit to doing. And I'm reminded that a mark of maturity is to enjoy the things in life that bring us joy regardless of its intended audience or maturity level. A mark of maturity is not caring how very mature one looks. A mark of maturity is not being concerned about how foolish we might look. An adult is not concerned about how others will superficially perceive them or even how they superficially perceive themselves. An adult knows they're an adult and they don't need to prove it. With God's love, we see ourselves in full. A mature person no longer has to see themselves through some maladapted lens of maturity and childishness, and they no longer have to worry about appearing mature or childish. They are who they are. And with God's love, we don't have to see ourselves as anything but God's beloved. When we think of ourselves as one part of many that makes up the body, we're then liberated to be ourselves fully and authentically who we are, not everything for everybody, but the part of the body that we are. And likewise, when we know there is no way to earn God's grace, that it's just freely given to us out of love, we no longer have to be anything other than God's beloved. 
And actually, we don't get to choose. We are always God's beloved. God's love for us is patient. It is kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, does not dishonor us or others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it rejoices in the truth, it protects, it trusts, it hopes, it perseveres, and it never fails. So we should not ask ourselves if we are worthy or deserve that love, because it's already here. It's already present for us. We already have it. But now, because we know this about God's love, we cannot live life dimly as if we didn't know we are God's beloved. We are God's beloved. And to see ourselves in our fullness is to see that we are loved by God. So it is not possible for us to have anything else but this love for one another. Love that is patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, but full of grace and mercy. If that's how God loves us, surely we can act like we know God's love and be that source for others. You are God's beloved, and you don't have to be anything else. Amen.